Okay, so really happy to welcome on the show a good friend of mine and Outlive Ventures, a regular prized mentor in our Web3 Accelerator program, Iwana Supatanu, who is non-executive director at Crypto UK. Welcome, Iwana. So Crypto UK, just quickly, is a trade body here in the UK representing the digital asset sector, working directly with policymakers and market participants to hopefully develop balanced regulatory environment and, of course, you know, positive, constructive governance policies in the UK, but I believe also increasingly in the European context. And one I know you've got a big, deep background in navigating the EU from an innovation perspective as well. We're going to be talking about kind of reflecting a little bit on 23, also taking some insights from you as we look into 24. We'll touch a little bit on the regulatory environment, but by by no means limited to that, because I know you you do a lot of work outside of that as a NED and, as I said, mentor advisor. I think you sit on the board or formally advise several of our portfolio companies. So, as I said, you're currently a NED at Crypto UK, key mentor at OV. Previously, so 17 to 21, you were co-head of European Government Affairs and innovation strategy and advocacy at City City Bank. I believe you chaired a few AmCham things, America Chamber of Commerce, a represented pretty impressive group of American companies in Europe and how they engaged with the various kind of regulatory environments there. And as I said, you know, you prior to that were were doing some great work at European Parliament. But maybe you can kind of fill in some of the gaps for us so some people that don't know you have some context. Yeah. Okay, so let's start with the Crypto UK role. As an ed on the board of Crypto UK, I work alongside Tina Baker-Taylor, whom you know, and Ian Taylor and Sue Carpenter, all amazing people, have an amazing team. My angle and role there is representing the DGEN side of Web3 and crypto. So basically ensuring that the smaller scale projects have a voice when it comes to interfacing, interacting with policymakers and regulators. Because the reality is that many of these smaller scale projects don't have an interest in or an appreciation of the need to reach out to regulators and advocate for their own specific project parameters. Uh, so that's what I do. I, I basically, I've coalesced the smaller base or the smaller project base that we have in Crypto UK uh, and I'm their voice. And uh, the plan is to increase that SME base if we want to use a traditional terminology for that and ensure that the regulators and policymakers in the UK basically are aware of what is being developed in the market. Because I can assure you they don't have a clue about a liquid restaking, for instance, and I think they should know about that, but we'll touch on that later. In terms of my professional trajectory, yes, correct, I was co-heading the government affairs team uh, at City with focus on innovation and counterintuitively crypto, because I was representing a TradFi entity and interacting with uh, my political network here in the EU, uh, trying to promote crypto, basically, while at the same time within City, I was doing the same, promoting crypto and promoting crypto partnerships and collabs and, and potential investments as part of the market infrastructure investments team, which I transitioned into for about a couple of months during a secondment that I made. So I had almost this dual role, government affairs plus uh, business side. And in terms of AMGMU, correct, I, I, I was vice chair of the European Parliament Outreach Task Force. But the most interesting part around my kind of leadership role, well, not kind, leadership role in AMGMU 
were our uh, Washington door knocks. That's what we call them. Once a year, we went to the U.S. We had a delegation of HMU leadership reps. We went to the U.S., met with the SEC, CFTC, National Security Council reps. And that means that 2017, 2018, I was already interacting with the CFTC and SEC on, on crypto representing city, which was kind of an interesting model. And also anecdotally, my colleagues from different companies at the time who had no idea what crypto even was, are now government affairs, uh, people in some of the major crypto companies. So, yeah. So I'm look, I'm glad, you know, we've kind of got people like yourself coming into the space full time, you know, leaving effectively leaving TradFi and the larger institutions, bringing that knowledge, network and expertise to support, you know, up and coming startups and talent as they look to try to navigate this environment. So maybe, maybe let's start there. You know, what's your perspective or take on the current regulatory environment? Obviously, we've seen a lot of enforcement from various agencies out of the US. We're starting to see various frameworks begin to solidify in a European context. And we're starting to see a number of the larger institutions, some foundations now kind of reselect the environment that they're basing their foundation of. I know several within our portfolio have actually moved the, the foundation headquarters now into jurisdictions, including Dubai and, and several others. So maybe we could kind of just get a health check on the, the broader regulatory environment as you see it. And what you think the implications are for founders, you know, founders being the kind of primary audience base that we've got here. Perfect. But before I do that, I want to answer your previous question around what 2023 has been all about. I'm, I'm going to be succinct with my answer. I feel 2023 was simultaneously a, a year of apathy, aftermath and recovery. I mean, obviously, the way I tend to look at this, filter it via two angles. So we had more of the public-facing crypto evolution, if you will. We had the SEC trials against Ripple and Grayscale. Obviously, we had the FTX trial. Now, the Binance, DOJ, kind of an ecosystem because it's developing into an ecosystem um, of various actions and reactions. And these were events, including uh, in March, right, the collapse of Silvergate, Silicon Valley, Signature. These were events that were open to the public in a way. So people from outside of the crypto world knew they were happening. That's what has been happening on one side. But simultaneously, within our crypto industry, we had some extremely sophisticated and innovative developments happening around account abstraction, staking, restaking, liquid restaking, MEV, all these sorts of infrastructural and kind of market revamping evolutions that I think were not are not known to the public. So that's why I say it's a it's a year of app for, for the people outside of the crypto world, it, it may have seemed apathic. For us within crypto, we actually saw some real development happening. And I think there will be very, very visible consequences as a result of, of this year. And what I mean by recovery, we're already seeing that in the price action. But I think the most important thing to understand and to observe is the fact that we've moved within or in the recovery phase beyond just financial services, crypto-related activity. Uh, we moved on to entertainment and social media, right? Uh, social fi, all, all these sorts of new things. And I think it's important to, to basically summarize again, it's important to redefine crypto 
the moment you bring a financial incentive layer and a monetization model to literally everything, it changes the paradigm. And I think that's what crypto is. Ultimately, we are able via the tech stack that we've developed collectively for the past, I don't know, 10 plus years, well, direct ownership, we can discuss why this is the primary or non-primary advantage of being in crypto. I don't think it is necessarily, but we are able to attach a financialization model, monetization layer to every single segment of the industry. And that's a very compelling argument for why crypto remains the most interesting industry today. So we can basically transform everything just beyond an alternative global financial system operating on a decentralized stack. We can enable that across the board throughout industry segments. Uh, and now to answer your, uh, your regulatory question. Obviously, there are major differences between jurisdictions. The EU, we had the formal adoption of the market in crypto assets uh, regulation. Now we have um, definitions of all sorts of asset types. Uh, I'm not going to get into the weeds of that because I don't know if it's that interesting for, for the listeners. Mika, what it basically does is that it creates a regulatory framework that applies across the board in all member states, and it tackles mostly centralized entities and their products, right? So issuers, custodians, exchanges, there are a variety of requirements that apply to them across the board in the EU, which obviously provides a lot of simplicity and clarity for firms that want to operate out of the EU. But like I said, I think it's the larger entities within crypto that benefit from that clarity, from that regulatory clarity. And since we're talking about Mika, I want to dispel this myth uh, because many newcomers into crypto or many newcomers in terms of understanding the EU environment always say that Mika was a result or is a result of Libra, the infamous Facebook, well, Libra DM, the infamous Facebook slash Meta stablecoin. The reality is private coin. Let's let's call it that. The reality is, and I think you know that very well, because you and I met with Petteri Zilgavis early 2018, and he was coordinating a team within the European Commission, uh, and they were collectively looking to promote uh, crypto within the EU and create a very progressive framework to enable that. It is true that the discussion, and once you, you put out a framework and it enters the trifecta, council, commission, parliament, legislative process, of course, many things can change. And it got hijacked by, by the whole Libra issue. But the reality is that the most aggressive lobbyists against Libra were the major banks. It wasn't about governments necessarily looking at what Facebook was developing and saying, oh, we need to react. Let's start uh, designing some CBDCs. It was more that the traditional system heavily and very aggressively lobbied against it. So had it not been for Libra, true, maybe we would have had a different type of framework. Uh, but I just wanted to put that out there because I've, I've been hearing it a lot. That, oh, Libra generated Mika. No, it's not true. It influenced it, but it did not generate it. Okay, that's Mika. To bring back a point that I mentioned earlier, because I digressed. Yes, it's very useful for larger entities. And we've seen uh, Circle, Binance move to France, move to Paris, because they, they've chosen out of this whole realm of member states, France seems to be the most progressive in terms of implementing it uh, already. It's not, it comes into force uh, early next year on the stable coin part primarily. So that's Mika, we have that. However, because we were talking about smaller projects, I don't see any of the smaller projects rushing to get a license in the EU. Because again, there's no clarity around DeFi, there's no clarity around NFT. So there are many, many elements that are left out. And now that we've given the regulators and policymakers control over crypto in the EU, in a way, because they've seen, oh, we're the first ones globally to put out this framework. 
there might be this unintended effect that they will want to continue this trend and tackle parts of the of the industry that they don't really understand. Um, let's be honest, there are no experts at that level that can now go through the DeFi tech stack and, and figure out where to regulate protocol level, application leg- layer, aggregation layer, etc. So that's the EU, semi-bullish. I am. I think it's important that we, we've shown the world that regulatory clarity can exist in crypto to an extent, up to an extent, but it's not enough. It's not sufficient. Moving to the UK, where our, we do most of our work with uh, Crypto UK. So FCA is, is the main player. Projects that want to operate in crypto need to register with the FCA. Obviously, there are also more traditional types of laws like e-money licensing or EMI licensing that larger institutions operating in crypto get. But there's no actual crypto regulation, uh, no no comprehensive framework such as the EU has. There was an announcement uh, about a week ago, and there are positive signals in terms of the UK actually wanting and and preparing to put forward crypto legislation by 2024, let's see. And they're going to have the same approach as the EU in terms of filtering it uh, via financial services angle. So it's going to be very much financial services focused with uh, additional focus on exchanges, custodians. So again, the centralized element, because that's what regulators understand how to do. They need to ensure consumer protection, market integrity, financial stability, and they tackle the centralized actors. So we're going to see not a similar uh, structure, uh, not similar to, to Mika, but the same approach. We In parallel in the UK, we have the FSMA, the Financial Services and Markets Act, which was probably the first comprehensive attempt to detach the UK from the EU in terms of financial services regulation. And there are particular angles within there that can have uh, an impact on crypto. So that's what the UK is all about. We're eagerly awaiting the proposal from Treasury and the regulators to see how crypto will be tackled. Again, and you know that very well, projects that want to find a jurisdiction will not look at the EU, but will also not look at the UK. This is not an attractive jurisdiction for for projects to operate within unless they're scaled up. I'm most bullish on Asia in terms of regulation when it comes to crypto. Of course, the market there, the, the ecosystem there is extremely fragmented. You have Japan that is operating on a retail, on an equilibrium and retail and institutional investor arena in crypto. So they have 50-50, if you will, and they need to adapt their regulation based off of that. You have Hong Kong that's been recently, that has recently become extremely progressive on crypto. They are defined by a lot of OTC crypto trading. And Hong Kong in itself is a very interesting jurisdiction because of the ties with China. And if Hong Kong is progressive, what does that say about China? Will they adjust their reaction to crypto, basically? And I think they will. I've always said that once their retail CBDC matures and becomes uh, permeates the markets, they will allow for private coins to to step back in. You have Singapore. Obviously, Singapore is very much focused on institution on the institutional segment uh, of crypto. So you have a variety of jurisdictions within Asia that collectively have have put together, I think, one of the most progressive uh, frameworks around the world. And yeah, of course, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, UAE, more generically, I'm most familiar with Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Uh, they, They are very progressive when it comes to crypto. However, I think to navigate the ecosystem, you need to to have some some domestic help because it's also very complex. And you, you miss the US. Oh, I miss the US. Regulation by enforcement. I mean, there is kind of pretty straightforward. The clash between CFTC and SEC, the perpetual clash between CFTC and the SEC and regulation by enforcement. Okay, 
there are some non-cloudy winds in the horizon. That's a very weird syntagma, but you know what I mean. Because you have the Financial Innovation and Technology Act for the 21st century, the FIT Act, which is progressive, especially if we analyze it in comparison with what has happened until this point in the U.S., uh, and the stablecoin bill. They they passed committee-level uh, votes uh, in the Senate. So let's see what happens uh, following this. I, I think, to be honest, I, I don't hear of any project wanting to operate in the U.S., even if they originate in the U.S. The trend is to move to Dubai, to Asia, and also South America. And now we've seen the news uh, regarding one of the Brazil's largest banks allowing crypto trading. So, so let's see, there are other jurisdictions in the world, crypto is global. So there's a lot of choice there. Yeah, I mean, look, that's that's a, a brilliant breakdown. And I think some interesting insights in there. So I think the first thing is certain jurisdictions biased towards larger institutions. Again, that's understandable. It's understandable because of the degree of centralization, market risk because of scale. And ultimately, these larger organizations also have the people power, the in-house lawyers effectively to be able to engage with regulators in a meaningful way. But again, still often need to be augmented by uh, industry bodies such as your own. You then kind of have everything else and everything else is still sloshing around. Of course, everything else is not where the scale is today. It's not where the GDP is that might allow politicians to kind of rationalize how this feeds into economic growth. But we know, obviously, this is where you know billions of value is going to be created, and, and it still hasn't necessarily picked a home. I'm interested in your kind of bull view on China post you know CBDC kind of rollout at scale. But I think the insight into LATAM coming online is very relevant, obviously, with Argentina now as well, and various other jurisdictions making it almost politicizing the, the role of Bitcoin and, and crypto in how they stabilize their kind of national economies. And I think that carries over into the US as well. I think certain jurisdictions, it almost feels apolitical. It's just kind of very much around economic growth, economic policy, whether that's you know Middle East, UAE, Saudi, potentially Hong Kong. And then you've got the US where we've already got presidential candidates, at least two presidential candidates directly referencing the role of Bitcoin in their kind of political manifesto. Um, and of course, we're seeing politicians in, in Latin America kind of mirror the same thing. So it's a strange environment, right? You know, I think if we were to kind of look back, as you say, five or so years ago, when you actually took me in to speak to the parliament, as you say, Patosal Gavis, on how the EU might be forming policy, would have you imagined we would be where we are now, whilst perhaps there's not the level of clarity that we'd like, the fact that You've got presidential, multiple presidential candidates in the U.S. politicizing crypto. You've got Latin American presidents, you know, making it a core way of how they transition effectively their national economies. You know, are we, are we where you would have expected we'd be in 2023? To be honest with you, I would have expected a lot more given the signals we were given back then. And I think the main difference between, uh, sorry, so if you talk about jurisdictions in Central South America, they don't have a choice. So they actually have some real economic problems and they have understood that there is an alternative and they're enforcing it. It's not the same in the US. It's not the same in the EU. I agree with your comment on China, but also if China decides to move in a pro-crypto direction, then it will have a significant impact globally because of their kind of centralized 
parameter-based ecosystem and, and how they enforce rules, basically, whether we like it or not. So yeah, to go back to the question, oh, I would have expected a lot more. I was expecting a lot more when I left TradFi to join crypto. I think, and I'm paraphrasing, this is not my idea, but I fully second it. I think the whole system that enables supervision and regulation and the whole institutional ecosystem in general is obsolete. Institutions are designed to, and this is where I'm paraphrasing, are designed to regulate or supervise or influence societies that have reached a certain path in their technological development. I think our institutional environment is very much designed to service the Web2 world, uh, and the whole system is obsolete, and we need to start to progressively generate some change. And I'll tell you what, let me continue with this, and I'll go back to your to your candidates, pro-crypto candidates. So we need to generate that change by ensuring that crypto people, actual crypto people, not people who have been outside of the crypto world that understand crypto. Crypto people are part of the regulatory environment. This is not what's happening. You have uh, TradFi people and uh, regulators creating inflows, outflows. So you have TradFi people becoming regulators and vice versa. Why does that not happen in crypto? Talk about educating regulators. Yes, we can do that up to an extent. We need people who have actual, who have developed actual products in crypto to be part of the regulatory environment. I know there's no incentive for them to do so, monetary or other. This is what we need to enable to ensure that the system will, will grow into something that is capable of supervising or generating laws on, on this era of technological revolution. I don't think the regulators have, they feel threatened. That is the reality. They feel empowered a little bit. I'm pretty sure the EU level regulators and policymakers feel extremely empowered because they feel, and they, at the moment, they are the global leaders in terms of uh, crypto regulation. But it doesn't mean that they understand or support it fully. So we need to ensure that the system becomes the one that we need to push this industry forward. On your comments, I come from the political world and I am impervious to political power and one candidate is not enough. Even if that person becomes the president in one, it depends on, on the region. Again, if it, we have a president, pro-crypto president in the US, it's obviously a major signal for, for the markets. But it doesn't mean that we'll have pro-crypto legislation from day one, because in a democracy, you have various entities that filter that process. Yeah, correct. If a president, a pro-crypto president operates in, in South America or in some other jurisdictions, yes, it's it's... The impact is more, more direct, but still, you need to ensure that you have multiple parties uh, within a whole system. So for instance, in the EU, it doesn't matter if during the next elections in June 2024, or May 2024, we'll have three pro-crypto members of the European Parliament. If they're not part of the most resilient or most powerful political group, or even if they are and they cannot influence decision-making, then it's irrelevant, basically. The obsolete system needs to become the novel system that understands uh, crypto. And I think we need to push crypto people. I, I would push the most DGEN developers <laughs> into regulatory jobs because I feel this is what we should be doing. Yeah, I mean, the inflow outflow thing is interesting in the context of regulators because we've certainly seen a lot of outflow, a lot of you know people involved in some of the major entities, especially in the US context, joining boards of some of the largest exchanges and stuff. But you're right, we've, we've not seen it in, in the other direction. And as, as you, again, quite rightly point out, 
it's not necessarily the most exciting role for a DJN to kind of to do. But again, somewhere where they can make real impact if they're kind of very, very purpose driven. And again, I think, you know, nobody has better insight than you. You alluded at the very top end, the thing that perhaps influenced Mika more than Libra itself was the resistance to Libra from, from TradFi. Obviously, very well organized, mobilized, capitalized group of organizations that are going to do everything they can to, you know, protect their industry, their position in an industry. And similarly, you then have all these various kind of political institutions, as you say, in Latin America, South America, Central America, it might be easy for particular political leader to just do away with those institutions in a way that's just not possible in in the US uh, or the EU. And so again, we might actually see a kind of more rapid acceleration to entirely pro-crypto economies as a whole in these regions than perhaps we could ever really hope for in the US or a European context. But I'm interested, so so maybe let's kind of transition into RWAs because it feels like the most obvious next step because it straddles both TradFi and potentially DeFi. And it is a space where large institutions could play, theoretically. So how are you seeing that ecosystem or capital market form over the course of 24 and beyond? You're absolutely right. I do see large institutions willing to play. They already play if we want to call private permission blockchain experiments uh, as their playground. Obviously, we've recently seen the completion of a variety of uh, tokenization or real-world asset-related projects by Goldman Sachs, Citi, uh, JP Morgan, um, UBS, etc. But if you look at the profile, it's mostly around tokenized repos or cash management, tokenized cash in a closed network, digitized bonds, enabling well faster, swifter uh, settlement, etc. I think it's also important to point out, and I'm not trying to be apocalyptic about it or anything, these projects have been in development for uh, a good number of years. They they kind of simultaneously went public or reached a certain level of completion, but it's not something that was initiated one year ago, which is why I personally, when I talk about, when I hear discussions around tokenization and RWAs, this amazing new trend, I just kind of leave the conversation, uh, (laughs) to be honest. But yeah, there, there is potential there. And this is, it feels like the most organic, symbiotic angle, if you will, between TradFi and DeFi. Obviously, we're looking at what Maker has been doing. They, they have, I think, almost 4 billion, 3.9 billion in their portfolio of real world assets. I think Maker was the first comer to this. And it's interesting, right? Because it's a decentralized protocol. And yet, through community governance, they, they've managed to, I think they're the largest asset manager of RWAs in, in DeFi which is quite substantial. Again, I'm not super excited about the TradFi projects, but I think it's a start. And let's be frank, large institutions will not get involved in DeFi unless there's regulation. And I don't foresee any comprehensive regulation on on DeFi anytime soon, just because the regulators are not equipped to do it, as we've discussed. I like the RWAs in DeFi as a concept because it allows off-chain assets to be yield generators in decentralized applications, which is the most, for me, the most bullish use case for RWIs. I think there was an increase of almost 1 billion, 800 million in terms of TVL 
generated by RWAs in DeFi. So that's extremely promising. But if you look at the institutions or, or the institutional players that are actually generating this, you won't find the big global uh, financial institutions in there yet. Crypto, TradFi, everything is about optimization and yield generation. The hunt for, for yields in whatever environment, be it more innovative or traditional, will stay the same. And so with these new developments that I alluded to, the earlier part of our conversation, liquid restaking, for instance, which I find extremely interesting as a concept. I don't know if I'm fully equipped to talk about it from an expert viewpoint, but I do understand it enough to think that if I see an institution like Citi or JPM involved in this whole infrastructural process and generating liquidity derivative on the other side as, as part of the ecosystem, I think that's going to be extremely bullish. I don't see that happening in 2024. I wish, but this is something that I would love to see. So I would love to see an institution like the ones that I mentioned involved in the liquid restating, uh, restaking arena and providing that level of or, or that kind of particular type of yield to their clients. The moment we see that happening, I think we've, we would have broken a huge milestones in terms of milestone in terms of combining TradFi and DeFi. For now, let's be content with what, what we see in the DeFi world, and let's hope that some level of regulatory clarity will encourage institutions to move beyond just playing around in private permission environments, which is what they do at the moment. Yeah, and I think equally, you know, perhaps as we start with you know, DAO treasuries for some of the kind of bigger foundations or bigger DeFi projects where there's this kind of big aggregate pool of assets that needs to be put to work all the way down to some of the more kind of exotic retail utilizations of DeFi. I think we're, we're starting to see a resurgence of DeFi startups, certainly applying to, uh, to our accelerator program, actually across programs, which is good to see. And as you say, I think for Web3 crypto more generally to mature, being able to move to a world of real yield versus, you know, kind of pontonomics, kind of just keep the kind of capital flowing around the system is going to be good for everybody. But it does need some regulatory environments to be begin to service, account for and, and service DeFi in all of its forms. So look, as I said, the regulatory part is just just one part of what you do. You do work with a number of startups, both in the outlier portfolio and, and beyond. What are some of the other interesting innovations that you've seen happening in 23? And kind of what predictions would you kind of make from those as we go into 24? Yeah, I'm extremely bullish on decentralized commerce. Uh, and decentralized commerce as part of a wider ecosystem. So bridging Web 2 and Web 3 entities via an open source or decentralized tech stack, if you will. And I have a particular project in mind, which you know, because it was part of, uh, well, it still is part of your portfolio, Redreamer. Aside from developing a new uh, NFT standard that they passed through the Ethereum community vote within a month or so, which is unprecedented in terms of speed. They have this vision that I attach myself to and have contributed to and continue to develop on around creating an ecosystem of, like I said, Web 2, Web 2.5, Web 3, and Web Plus players around decentralized commerce. And I think, to me, this is one of the most innovative uh, concepts. And this is how we bring together the more traditional parts of the ecosystem, not necessarily in finance, but from other industries via direct exposure to NFTs. They're still out there. And this duo, I don't like the digital terminology. It just sounds bizarre. 
but this dual physical object verse and digital object complementarity via an abstracted way because they don't need to understand all of these things to to benefit from them. So de- decentralized commerce and E plus commerce, this is how we call it together with the guys at Redreamer. I told them I was going to mention it on podcast, by the way. And also, I think based on what I've seen throughout the cohorts in all of your base camps, because I think I'm a mentor in all of them, if I'm not mistaken, especially not the ZK one, which is surprising because I do have some knowledge on ZK or zero knowledge from the scalability, but also privacy side. So yeah, I'm just, I'm just going to make sure I want that as well. Yeah, it's a lot of many, many solutions designed at onboarding masses, basically, into Web3. I think we still haven't haven't enabled that. And one reason is the apathy that I referenced. The other one is just we need to simplify. As much as I'm a proponent of everyone educating themselves on Web3 and crypto just because it's knowledge and knowledge is useful, I think we need to to simplify everything. We need to simplify the infrastructure. We need to uh, simplify interactions with wallets and basically make it seamless and fun for users to be a part of, of Web3 with all of its elements. And I still am bullish on gaming. Again, going back, because we were discussing about gaming two years ago, I remember in all the city uh, webinars, I don't think the direct ownership of the asset is necessarily the most relevant proposition that we have in Web3 Gaming. Because yeah, you are an owner, it's great. You can sell the asset and generate some capital on that. But however, if the game goes bust, your asset loses value and you cannot resell it. You're basically stuck with an NFT there that doesn't mean anything anymore. But there is a silver lining to that because as a result of the collapse of the Web3 gaming industry in the past year, you have some very cool new solutions like, for instance, the NFT Junkyard, uh, another member of your portfolio, which allows users to, to basically via a lottery system and a gamified experience, extract some value even from, from their defunct uh, NFT. There's another uh, project, not part of the, your portfolio, but it's, it's fine. I won't name it. That allows another <laughs> gamified lottery experience via which you can access the blue chip NFTs. We still have those with small amounts because you enter a lottery system and then you, know, you might win uh, a blue chip NFT. So again, there are many, many things that have resulted as a result of decline. Let's not call it collapse of, of Web3 gaming, but I'm still bullish on gaming. I'm not bullish on the direct ownership side. I'm more bullish on monetization of status. Like I said, I think the most compelling use case or feature of crypto is the fact that you can add monetization to everything. And if you add the correct monetization layer to status generated uh, within virtual environments, then you have the winning ticket. And I think you and I both have daughters more or less of similar ages. And it's a very different type of social interaction that they perform on a daily basis. And so the moment you incentivize those kids, the next generation, incentivize them to put in the effort to try out Web3 games and benefit from the design mechanics that will generate some monetary value or other status-related value for them, they will definitely do it. So far, I have personally not been able to convince my daughter, who's an avid game video game player, to consistently play Web3 games. But I do still believe that we have something in gaming, just because... I think there's so many similarities, just like AI and crypto are complementary, so are gaming and crypto. We, we talk about similitudes in behavior, we talk about similitudes in digital nativeness, etc. So yeah, there, there's still something in gaming. Let's see, I know that the, there are a couple of games that are supposed to emerge early 2024, so I'm still 
very bullish on that. Let, let's see how how they play out. What what type of incentive structures and parameters they have. I'm also very close to another portfolio company of yours, Werewolf and Witch, operating out of Asia. I'm bullish on Asia. I'm bullish, bullish on games in Asia. So yeah, they have a, an interesting concept. Yeah, and I think like looking forward as to the kind of phoenix from the flames that comes from the kind of ashes of the first NFT cycle, where you know effectively we still have this social graph this fragmented social graph based upon what's what's in people's wallets and, and what they did in the last cycle and how that can be brought to life in in this next new cycle potentially feeding into social fi and, and new forms of web3 social media so th- that's definitely something I, I think we're really interested in and i think the second point you said around looking at consumer applications and decentralized commerce where you kind of have these mobile first abstracted experiences, abstracted conceptually, you know, what we call things, how we refer to this, the new functionality and benefits that they gain. And then, of course, like the technical account abstraction, again, a big, big theme that we're kind of seeing across the portfolio. So maybe we kind of close off. We're looking into 2024. Obviously, the big catalyst that everybody's waiting for from a market's perspective are the ETFs. Firstly, do you agree that the ETFs are going to be a kind of market catalyst? And secondly, you know, when do you think they're going to start to happen? I strongly agree that ETFs are going to be a market catalyst. I do believe they will generate a huge positive signal. I don't know. Maybe we, there are about 11 applications so far, and one of them is BlackRock, which I, if I'm not mistaken, out of 500 ETF applications, only one was rejected ever. And now we have the Binance uh, transgression out of the way. So kind of the, the road is clear for the ETFs uh, applications to, to be approved. Yes, the market will react positively. I wanted to say extremely positively, but that's grammatically incorrect. So positively with a lot of pathos to ETFs. However, let's also kind of calm down in terms of enthusiasm there will be first movers into offering these products to their clients, right? Financial, smaller financial advisory firms, etc. I don't expect the capital uh, pool related to the ETF enthusiasm to be huge in the first year, mainly because larger institutions, again, we're, we're entering the rails of traditional finance. We have compliance, we have bureaucratic processes, we have large institutions, which are not incentivized, quite frankly, to offer products to their clients until a certain uh, capital threshold has been reached. So it will take some time. Yes, positive signal, but in order to to get the capital outflows that we expect from this, it will take probably a year or two or three until the whole system starts starts moving. But I am I'm bullish and I, let's see, maybe end of December, January, we should wait and see. And then we, sh- we should also wait and see because I mentioned there are multiple applications. Which one is the most dominant one? And then it comes back to having the right network, the partners that you normally work with, because again, TradFi, intermediaries, a whole ecosystem of players around a relatively simple product. But I bullish on it because it will offer masses with no crypto knowledge, no crypto risk appetite, uh, the possibility to be exposed to, to crypto. So I'm extremely bullish on, on that. Very cool. Well, look, Juana, I'm really appreciative of your time. Thanks for coming on. Hopefully we get to see each other over Christmas. Our daughters get to hang out. I know the audience would have really appreciated the perspective that you brought to this. And let's make sure we get you on that ZK program in 24. Great. 
you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.